0: Hi everyone, today is November 14th, 2019. Welcome to a Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is Steve Marin. Hi, Steve. Hello. Steve is University Distinguished Professor and Charles H. Gregory Chair in Liberal Arts at the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences and in the Institute of Neuroscience, all at Texas A&M and College Station. The Marin Lab's research interests are on the brain circuits and cellular mechanisms underlying the storage, retrieval, and extinction of aversive memories and how dysfunction in these circuits and processes contributes to anxiety disorders. His research toolbox is varied. It encompasses behavioral and systems neuroscience methods that include Deer conditioning and extinction training in rats and mice, reversible brain lesions, intracranial pharmacology, electrophysiology, and immune histochemistry. So, around the room, we've got Matt Wannett. Howdy. We've got Charles Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. And Isabel Muzio. Hello. Hi, guys. Okay, so let's get started. Um, Pavlovian conditioning and extinction training are are widely used to study the acquisition and extinguishing of fear and its relapse, as well as drug-seeking behavior and its relapse. And a long history of research, much of it yours, uh, has uh, shown that there's a common neural circuit that underlies learning, extinction, and relapse in these two domains. It's also interesting that fear dysregulation syndromes like PTSD and substance use disorders are so often comorbid and equally resistant to therapies and prone to relapse. So I'd like to start on the behavioral side first, and then we're going to get to the circuit itself. Mm -hmm. But just briefly, can you describe the common associative operation in fear conditioning and drug seeking as you see it, as it's going to map onto the circuit that we're then going to talk about?
1: Yeah, well, so both are... um, forms of learning that are motivated by biologically significant events. In the case of fear, it's obviously threat, painful stimuli that drive learning. In the case of drug seeking, it's repetitive outcomes, which strongly activate dopamine systems and so forth. And so the, there's a lot of common circuitry there in terms of amygdala and so forth, in appreciating values of rewards and being involved in associating cues with biologically significant outcomes. Um, And then what we've become interested in is how contextual processes kind of are brought to bear on those kind of primary associative learning processes and the relevance of those operations and common circuits involving context regulation of behavior that becomes important for these relapse issues, whether it's fear relapse or drug relapse. I think there there are common circuits that underlie those.
0: So I'm probably wrong, but this is the way I am envisioning it. Is there's a sort of common associative circuit, and then you're sort of building the map of the things that are imbuing stress and context and other things that then regulate the different aspects of acquisition and extinction, and then you know that dysregulation is what's causing. It. So take us through the fundamental. Is, that the is there like one
2: place that where the associations are stored for? both things, or are they stored in separate places for each I think
1: there's overlap and divergence in those things. So, I mean, the amygdala, for example, seems to have roles in appetitive and aversive associations to some degree, much more in terms of first-order conditioning of fear in amygdala than first-order conditioning of appetitive outcomes, for example, but the amygdala does have a role in that. Obviously, nucleus accumbens and other circuitries heavily involved in drug reward and drug seeking and act, you know, which are in many cases instrumental behavior. So there's also an instrumental Pavlovian dissociation at work too. So I think there's, you know, there's not a common associative structure that underlies both aversive and appetitive learning. There is overlap, and then I think there's perhaps more common circuitry at the higher level, which is how context and contingency are kind of brought to bear on these other learning systems. Um, and so that's you know one of the places where I think there is evidence of similar hippocampal cortical regulation of drug seeking and fear, for example, um, that's now being appreciated. So is it thought that, you know, that
3: different ensembles pretend, you know, ensembles of neurons in, say, the prefrontal cortex might be, you know, regulating sort of the the drug intake behavior versus, you know, fear, um, I guess, what is known to that extent as far as, you know, when you do have these neural systems that might be involved with sort of multiple types of behaviors, are the same neurons contributing to it or are they different neurons and... I guess, what is the state? Of yeah,
1: that's a good question. I mean, whether there's, you know, cooperativity in terms of the function of some of these ensembles or whether they're divergent. I don't have a... Very,
4: very few eh. people in the field yeah. combined uh, the study of reward-seeking behavior and fear conditioning. There are some loves, but it's limited. I think that people become so specialized. But I have a question for Steve. Mm-hmm. Now with the of the genetics, uh, we have learned so much in recent years from your work, the work of Luthi, about the circuitry, circuitry that controls emotion, about which are the pathways that, you know, are involved and the regions that are involved. And so how do you see the field is going to move from now on and what are the important questions that remain to be unsolved yeah. in that regard?
1: Yeah, well, so we're, we have become very heavily tool driven and that's, you know, you know, There's costs and benefits, I think, of that approach. Um, The benefit is that we can really parse circuits in a way that we just couldn't before. And so questions that we had 10 years ago where the toolbox we had to address the circuitry question were pretty primitive, like a disconnection design was what we had in our hands in order to look at connectivity. Now we can parse these circuits with, you know, circuits of selective opsins, dreads, and so forth. So that's very powerful, and I think really allows us to um, understand the neurobiology and neurocircuitry in a way that we just couldn't before. The downside of the explosion of methods is that we still have to keep in mind, like you said, what the questions are, what the processes that we're studying are. And I think there's a lot of utility in maintaining focus on these paradigms which have long served us, like Pavlovian fear conditioning in terms of understanding associative processes involved in learning, consolidating, retrieving fear memories, keeping our focus on those because although we've learned a lot, there's still much to be learned and they're very useful models um, for understanding these processes. The tendency has been to treat behavior like a tool, like, you know, so many people are shifting their behavioral foci to novel paradigms in the hopes that that will sort of be sort of equally innovative in terms of how we understand underlying processes. But what it what it does, I think, in many cases, it's while there are interesting and new questions that can be addressed using new paradigms, it also sort of throws the baby out with the bathwater, and that we've got so much historical data on the operation of these tried-and-true paradigms that we can really use to leverage the new tools um, to understand circuits. So I think there's a balance. I think we have to keep our... use the tools, but use them smartly.
4: So regarding that, um, there is a shift by some researchers in in the fear emotional feel, I want to, that's the question I want to ask, the one that relates to fear, like Joe Ledoux, for example, is trying to move away from the word fear, because we rely so much on the animal behavior, so actually we are not measuring the emotion, right, and I want to know your thoughts and whether you can explain our audience, what that all means and whether you agree or not. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, no. So it's an interesting place we're in where the founder, in many ways, of the field, a guy, Joe Ledoux, who got me excited in affective neuroscience when I was an undergraduate at the University of Illinois in the 80s has now pivoted and argued that we can't really study fear in animal models. I mean, that's in some ways the essence of his claim because we don't have insight into the subjective experience of a rat or a mouse or a cat or a monkey. Um, personally, I think that view is somewhat misguided insofar as the community has always understood these concepts like fear to be proxies for sort of isomorphic behaviors and. Uh, you know, neurobiological states that are associated with distinct stimuli and outcomes and so forth. And fear really was a term that emerged to um, aggregate a whole bunch of learned behaviors that people were studying at the time, including increases in heart rate, increases in blood pressure, changes in activity, freezing, pupillary dilation, all of these conditioned responses associated with aversive stimuli, which were essentially isomorphic to what people experience under threat. So we said, well, this seems to be quite similar to a fear response. And so fear, I think, is a nice term to aggregate all those. Of course, we don't know the subjective experience of a rat. We also don't know the subjective experience of an infant who can't, who's nonverbal. But we don't necessarily deny emotions to infants, for example. So I think that we can still study these things and learn a lot about um, emotional states using these animal models. And I have not so much of a problem with the terminology as Joe does. So we're not gonna have to redo all the textbooks
3: and refer to threat conditioning versus fear conditioning now, or I don't
1: think so. And I think actually if you were to revisit the semantics and I've talked with Joe about this, I think you'd have to go back to the more behaviorist tradition, which is to refer to the responses that you're conditioning. So I study conditioned freezing, so someone else studies conditioned heart rate, and you just start describing in purely behavioral terms what it is that you're measuring and what it is that's undergoing change. Um, Substituting threat for fear, to me, carries like all the same burdens. You know, what's the threat? It depends on lots of parameters, proximity, intensity, you know, modality. And so it like, it's, I think it's not, doesn't clarify things.
0: Some of that, that, Vocabulary issue happens when people start talking about stress as well because that's something that you can induce as a behavioral situation, but it's also something you could parameterize physiologically, right? I mean, so I'm not sure how that whether it's useful to separate those things. Yeah,
1: stress is an interesting one too, where it's been become a catch all term for lots of um, uh, stimuli situations that. Change in animals' homeostasis, whether it's psychological or physiological, the stress field is in fact basically gone. To you know, circulating cord as a proxy for stress. So that anything that increases, phys- you know, circulating cord is considered a stressor. Of course, there's lots of things that we don't think of as being very stressful, like what, standing what does that up, mean?
0: circulating
1: co- corticosterone. Oh, corticosterone. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <It's> like yeah, <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of things that you know increase corticosterone, like standing up or eating, which we don't think of as psychologically stressful in the way that the field tends to use the term. So Circadian cycles as well. Yeah, circadian cycles. So I think, I mean, that's, an, again, a case where the stress field actually I think has encountered a lot of difficulty because they have many, many um stimuli that will induce a stress response, but they're very, very different from foot shock to restraint to social defeat, all causing sort of a common cord outcome in a sense, corticosterone rise. But the neurobiology underlying those different responses has to be very different at some level, I think, so.
4: But then you have the complexity that some regions, like I know you're long-term interested in the ventral hippocampus that I also share. Uh, That have been associated with both processes right and with anxiety and as well as fear so At some level there is overlap which makes things even more complicated to disentangle Um,
1: It's true. We have a lot of work to do so (laughs) the (laughs) ventral hippocampus is very you know closely linked to regulation of the HPA axis. It's like a classic Mm -hmm. negative feedback part of the circuitry on HPA axis and yet has all of these very well-defined roles in anxiety-like behavior and conditioned fear, and in our case, sort of more cognitive roles in episodic memory, context processing, and memory retrieval operations. So, you know, what we're probably learning is that many of these brain regions have roles in many different processes. And so, again, I think, you know, we do have to sort of avoid having blinders on and being very paradigm-specific in how we interpret function, but we do have to kind of keep in mind the diversity of behaviors and processes that they that are involved with.
4: Um, but it's complicated, for uh, sure. No, you have been paying a lot of attention lately to the nucleus reunions, and I would like you to tell us a about about it and your findings and why you consider it an important contributor.
1: Yeah. So the nucleus reunions… We're talking about it. Later. And where is it? Yeah. <laughs> the <It's a> nucle- <laughs> no. nucleus reunions is a midline thalamic nucleus. It's part of the ventral midline thalamus. So you can… The paraventricular thalamus, which has received a lot of attention recently as well, sits dorsal to the um, nucleus reunions. So they're part of these non-specific thalamic nuclei because they're not traditionally the sensory relays that we think of in the visual and auditory system. And they clearly have roles that are one can conceive of as modulatory. Their anatomy is basically designed in the case of the nucleus reunions to broadcast broadly to the hippocampal formation, CA1, subiculum in particular, similarly to prefrontal cortex, both infralimbic and prelimbic, and interconnect the two. So we became interested in the nucleus reunions because of our um, studies on context regulation of extinction and our just general interest in context processing. Clearly hippocampus has a role in contextual memory occasion-setting type functions where context can serve as a regulator of what we know about other stimuli in the world. And nucleus reunions became, became of interest because it's the one of the few ways in which the prefrontal cortex can actually influence hippocampal function. And we think that limb of the circuit may be highly relevant to actually to suppressing context-inappropriate information so that hippocampus has this library of memories which it has access to Context can be very important in queuing up those memories, but something has to sort of direct What's context appropriate and what's not and so there's a lot of data actually emerging from human work that suggests prefrontal cortex has this hierarchical role in generating context-appropriate responding humans with prefrontal damage have trouble suppressing memories that might interfere in current test performance. They tend to perseverate on old information and not adapt to new contingencies. So we think that prefrontal cortex might actually be driving some of the suppression of context-inappropriate information, and that may go through the reunions. So in our hands, the, the major finding that we've reported recently is that if we inactivate the nucleus reunions, animals in... A place where they should normally suppress fear after extinction, so they've come to learn that the warning signal is no longer dangerous, they're completely unable to do that with the reunions and activate, and we think it's because they're unable to suppress the prepotent memory that the CS is bad, which is obviously something that they still retain after extinction. Um, which is an important point that we always make in our work, is that extinction never erases these fear memories. The fear memories are always there, just managing them moving forward post-extinction, so.
3: How generalizable do you think that is, you know, I mean, obviously your work is more focused on, you know, the fear conditioning realm. Do you think this
1: is sort of a general modulation of, you know, would it apply to sort of the appetitive domain as well? I think it would. I mean, it's a really good question. We haven't done that, and this is a case where maybe expanding our repertoire of tasks would be good to look at the more general issues. Um, But it is involved in other situations, working memory for appetitive rewards, spatial alternation, things like that. So I've Don't doubt that it is having similar roles in coordinating hippocampal prefrontal synchrony relevant to all sorts of behavior, whether it's appetitive, aversive, instrumental or Pavlovian, spatial, non-spatial. I think it's pretty ubiquitous and it's one of these brain regions where if you look at its anatomy. It's just built as a modulator. That's the only way you can kind of think about it, I think, because it doesn't have this small number of neurons, relatively, and it's broadcasting kind of global signals, and there's quite a bit of electrophysiological evidence that it can um, entrain theta synchrony in hippocampus and cortex and it can influence sort of directionality, lead-lag relationships between hippocampus and cortex can kind of be shifted depending on reunion state so it can push information from hippocampus to cortex or move it back from cortex to hippocampus and so... Um
2: well, what kind of data says all of that? Yeah, that's a very powerful technique, whatever it was. Yeah,
1: so people typically are doing LFP recordings local field potential recordings and hippocampus and prefrontal simultaneously and then looking at along with spike recordings and looking at essentially um, temporal shifts and who's leading who in the in the theta synchrony train and so that can be affected by re, you know nucleus reunions, manipulations you can, and, and during different behavioral states and task performance where the hippocampus can lead prefrontal, then it can push back and prefrontal leading
2: hippocampus. I see. So the, the, um, the actual data is phase of oscillations, yeah. but the interpretation is pushing information. Yeah. That so seems like a leap
1: to me. Yeah, so that is potentially a leap. I mean, how we understand what synchrony and LFPs mean with respect to information, I agree, is a leap. All we can really infer from the data is one structure having a functional um, outcome on another structure in terms of spiking events with respect to, you know, theta waves. But what that means in terms of information, I mean, that's maybe the game that we're all trying to play is trying to figure out what the information that's being pushed is. So what other
3: inputs are coming into the nucleus because it doesn't make sense at least from an evolutionary perspective to just have a simple relay, you know, there's got to be some yeah. other information that's coming in, and is it, So It, yeah. gets, well, it
1: gets lots of brainstem information from VTA, PAG, uh, parabrachial, so that could give some sense of, uh, RaphaE is another big input. Um, Information from hypothalamus, supramammillary is one of its big inputs, which is interesting because it's involved in theta synchronization, too, and it's involved in, there may also be cells there concerned with head direction and spatial location, and location and moving through place obviously has a high strong correlates in theta, so it's getting a lot of bottom-up information, it's also getting a lot of this top-down information from hippocampus, prefrontal, so one view is that it's somehow gating. Not only is it influencing hippocampal prefrontal synchrony, but it may also be influencing the dominance of sort of the top-down versus bottom-up processing in, this, in the in this system. And I think for paraventricular thalamus as well, which is also part of the midline, there's been this theme of resolving conflict. And in paraventricular, one thing that's become clear and when you have animals in both appetitive and aversive situations where they've been variously trained to pursue food in one case or avoid shock or respond to shock in another, paraventricular seems to be involved in that conflict resolution. Um, And reunions may be doing something similar but maybe less motivationally relevant conflict but more cognitive conflict in terms of memories that... You have in the past that might influence performance now, but contingencies have changed. You have to update your contingencies to respond adaptively now, suppressing previous information, but again, maybe resolving conflicts based on behavioral state and other things like that. So,
4: one thing that is quite interesting, based on everything you are saying, um, it brought me to think that we think we. We used to think about different circuits that control behavior in a very simplistic manner, like, you know, connections between amygdala, prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, and now the more we know about the brain, the more we learn that all these other regions also play a role. And it's at every level, not just in, in fear learning, but um, if you look at the circuits that control head direction that have been um, uh, studied by Taub, it's a bunch of regions, interconnected yeah. regions. So, and every day we learn about something new and that regions that were not considered before play a fundamental role. So, how do you see that in terms of interpreting something, even a simple behavior such as classical fear conditioning, yeah. can involve such a variety of brain regions? How, what does it mean and, and yeah. how does it? Lead us to the future yeah. in terms of investigating. I mean,
1: I think the first response is that even <laughs> Pavlovian conditioning, and Raskorla made this point many years ago, is not simple. I think he wrote a paper in American Psychologist when he said Pavlovian conditioning—it's not what you think it is. And many people have this textbook version of Pavlovian conditioning based on you know salivating dogs and metronomes—that it's you know sort of replicating a you know unconditioned response to food, and the CS can condition stimulus can do the same thing and stories over. I think even these tasks which we hold as being relatively simple because of the two stimuli that we offer the animal are actually quite complicated and uh, and as we move beyond the sort of kind of primary points of sensory convergence which was always the original tradition for studying the neural mechanisms of learning whether you in it are an aplysia looking at abdominal ganglion where tail shock can sensitize serotonin you know release um, or if you're doing a Pavlovian procedure in alysia or a mammal we've started with kind of where the CS and us convergence were and now we've just moved beyond into circuitry that is clearly multimodal like the hippocampus and um, multisensory and so it's uh, i think it gives us a window into these modulatory effects on behavior including behavioral state you know m- meta knowledge metacognition things like that
3: so are we screwed from a therapeutic standpoint <laughs> i mean it, it,
1: i mean obviously one of the major you
3: know it major impetus behind you know studying fear conditioning is you know the inappropriate sort of manifestation of behaviors to, you know, cues that might have been associated with, you know, aversive outcomes. So PTSD, you know, a lot of times that's, you know, or anxiety-related disorders. And if, you know, these behaviors or, you know, inappropriate expression of these behaviors involve so many complicated neural circuits, are we screwed from, a, from like a therapeutic <laughs> right. standpoint? Like, is there any hope or... Where, where do we go from here? I mean, uh, obviously, NIMH has you know changed their verbiage of how you know we discuss you know this type of research. And I mean, there is a there is an important point of yes, we found another brain regions involved with
1: uh, you know fear conditioning. Yeah. So what? What what are we going to do with this? Yeah. So I mean, it's true that as the circuits proliferate and presumably, you know, signaling pathways in those circuits will be equally complex. One might find it hard to imagine what the therapeutic intervention intervention might be. And clearly, there's not going to be a single target, whether molecular or circuit for a disorder like PTSD or depression. Um, so one could hope, though, that you might identify, like in our case, we think we've identified some circuits that are really critical to relapse that might be more targetable, but, you know, and might have some commonality for both drugs and fear. That said, we're a long way off from actually understanding whether there's, you know, interventions that might actually help people. Um, There's some surprising, you know, new possibilities, though. Courtney Miller at Scripps, Florida, has found that she can disrupt methamphetamine memories, specifically and selectively leaving food, cocaine memories intact by... Uh, muscle myosin inhibitors in the amygdala selectively gets rid of methamphetamine memories and nothing else and now they're on to Clinical trial I, well they're they're in a drug development path towards developing Safe and one use only compounds for meth addicts and it seems very promising and it's a uh, um, Suggests that there is an underlying molecular biology and targets that one would think would be shared between even psychostimulants, which is unique.
0: So you said it gets, the way you said that, it gets rid of memories for meth.
1: Yeah.
0: So is relapse a failure of extinction, or is it a failure of the original memory? Right. How are we talking about relapse? So relapse,
1: in most cases, is a failure to... um, Maintain extinction over long periods of time or abstinence that's what's been driving the, the loss of drugs seeking and so it's the inability to maintain the, you know this extinction profile, the original fear and/or drug associated memory comes back and drives performance. but these um, interventions that like for instance Courtney Miller has started to pursue are ones targeting the original memory so that if you get rid of the original never happened. yeah like it's like it never <laughs> happened sort of a,
2: does that uh, really mean I, I, I took meth at some point and now I don't remember that I ever did that
1: Well again these Body experiences movement. are multi multiply determined so there are there are memories that are probably intimately tied to cues that predict the reward value of meth that are in the amygdala but will, it will leave untouched memories in the hippocampus about the set and setting in which you took the drug. And so then the question of which of those are the things that are actually driving drug-seeking more. Is it the incentive value of the, the compound or your episodic memory of where and when you took it? So in the, case of these, in the case of these animals that have been self-administering meth, you give them this drug in the amygdala and they stop self-administering.
2: But it's pretty hard yeah. to understand exactly, because you could just keep all the memories but disconnect the affective side from the memory, or yeah, there's a lot of different things that could be happening, and we really, we don't know. That's yeah. why we use a simple thing like forgetting meth. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. just shorthand, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that would be the easy way, right? If you uh-huh. could just get rid of the meth memory, uh-huh. you know, I suppose altogether, but this becomes the issue with memory. It's, it's highly associative, and so you hit one part of the network, you might pull down, like, lots and lots of other things that have been connected to those.
4: And it seems like that's a a little bit of the the fundamental question, and there's lots of uh, talks about whether these are contextual or modulatory or, you know, fundamental. So are there fundamental processes that there's lots of involved in context, but... They're relatively modulatory relative to the core thing. Or is it all just like everywhere and all mixed up that you can't pull things apart? I I think
1: there are some places in the brain with respect to both fear and drugs where you could isolate fundamental plasticity that's involved in the establishment of the memory. So the amygdala is clearly a place like that with fear. If you put an NMDA receptor antagonist into the amygdala, Prior to fear conditioning, you will see no evidence that the animal ever conditions fear. So it's clearly involved in learning, you know, those relationships. Um, they might show some evidence of having learned about the place, independent of the aversion. That is, the you know, there are other brain structures that are learning and are online that are aren't affected by an NMD antagonist in the amygdala. But at least in terms of the the fear. Memory that seems to be critical, but I think it just speaks to this issue again that when we put animals in what we think are these simple behavioral experiences, there's all sorts of plasticity memories being laid down. You might isolate one aspect with a particular neural manipulation, but there's much more going on.
4: Um, Your comment about the cells that are involving amphetamine memories. Uh, to me, some questions that I have about where the field is going in terms of um, thinking that there are engrams about, for example, emotional memories, and, and a lot of research has been done by the Engram Group, uh, leading, lead, led by Tony Gawa, showing that you can create false memories about fear. But I think that that's a very simplistic view in my in my mind because. Uh, They just look at the activity of Hubs that are active, but there are many other cells that are active. And there is a paper that came out last year in Science showing that the cells that are not part of the engram are also providing important information, especially important information about the context. So this brings us to the complexity of memories, right? And what are you deleting or what you are activating? Maybe just part of the experience and nothing else.
1: I think what do also, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think it also is, you know, we're defining engrams by the tools we have available. Exactly. Is a FOSS active cell the essence of an activity profile that defines mm-hmm. contribution to a memory trace? It's only one immediate early gene among many. We know that there's like a diversity in immediate early genes in terms of their expression profiles and time mm-hmm. courses. And so we're looking, you know, it's the proverbial, you know, looking under the spotlight for the answer. I think we'll find that as the we mature to more, you know, sophisticated measures of neural activity that capture, you know, not only immediate early gene expression profiles, I mean, spiking, subthreshold oscillations. I mean, what is the metric of like a cell being engaged during learning that would, Involve incorporation to a memory trace. Sheena Jocelyn argues that it's a CREB
4: exactly. is like
1: which will bring a cell into a memory trace. You just, if you upregulate CREB, it's going to play play in. If it's downregulated, it won't. And
4: It's just know. that my point was that it's true. All those findings are true, and we have seen them but there is, also a background activity. there is also background activity that participates. Yeah. And we don't really understand what that can contribute. So even if you identify the principal cells that may have the highest level of activity or express an early gene the most, there are other cells that are yeah. also doing something and we are still not understand. We are understanding 10% of what is yeah. going on.
1: I mean, I think the demonstrations that selective targeting cells that have been recruited into the memory trace, however you define their recruitment by whether it's CREB levels or FOSS, but tagging them and then in such a way that you can target them later and showing that you can reduce performance is a pretty strong tie-in that those cells were involved in some way in the network-supporting behavior. But in most cases, those impairments that you get are not complete I'll actually show some data like that today. In, know, Twenty minutes. <laughs> we have two more. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> two right. But um, yeah, so in many cases those impairments aren't complete, so that leaves open the question: Well, then, what are uh, is the rest of the network uh-huh. contributing, and it may be substantial, and it may be enough that it can actually result in savings such that on um, new experiences with. you know the formerly forgotten or erased material might rapidly restore performance so I mean I think it is important for us to realize the limitations of these kind of selective tagging targeting tools and that leave out the rest of the network.
0: Can we end on a positive note in terms of translational stuff you have thought a lot about aligning human and mouse stuff how how are you sort of proposing that we approach the grand challenges
1: now? Yeah so I think there's lots of translational paradigms that we have both in um, know aversive and appetitive domains that are relevant to fear and drug seeking for example that we have certainly a whole host of data from human neuroimaging experiments that lead to convergent neural circuits Um, much of what we know about human neural circuitry under say fear conditioning was learned first in animal models and so we can I think we have a lot to provide in terms of uh, those translational possibilities and I think, you know, the communities are talking with each other quite a bit, too, and I think that helps to move things forward, so.
0: Fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Steve Marin. Yep, thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, guys.